Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. This is the Zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories, words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today, really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper. All views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for. So please come along for the journey, enjoy the ride and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Dennis, I'm your presenter, and today I am really happy to introduce to you Graham Dick. Now, welcome, Graham, to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, Graham, if you want to introduce to all our lovely listeners exactly who you are, where you work, and what position you hold. Uh, yeah, so I am the Director of Zoo Operations uh, at Jersey Zoo, which is part of the, the larger Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust, which uh, I'm sure most people are aware of it through Gerald Durrell and the legacy that he, that he left. So yeah, so I'm based on the, the lovely little island of Jersey and the Channel Islands, which is uh, is unique in itself. Uh, lots of nice beaches and, and a fantastic zoo. That all sounds great. Now, as for your journey, your building blocks, your stepping stones, do you have them? Are there those keystone moments to get into the position you're in today? Hard question. I mean, yeah, my, my story is quite an unusual one in that, you know, I'm 33 years old and the director of Jersey Zoo, which is um, it's quite an unusual position to be in. Probably seen that to get to a director level in a, in a zoo, you've got to be a seasoned veteran of, of the industry and, you know, work your way up through the ranks, which I have done, but I started zookeeping when I was 12. I suppose in an era that you'll never get today with health and safety, but I, I was really lucky just purely by chance to uh, to be visiting Blair Drummond Safari Park with my family on a day out, being in a really unusual situation where I'd gone to the Bird of Prey Centre and uh, the chap that was running it at the time said... Uh, here, hold this bird and hold my coffee. I need to go to the toilet. And I remember that really vividly. Uh, and the guy was in a kilt and he, he had just remembered the whole situation. And he gave me a hobby falcon, which, you know, when you look back at it now, was not exactly a common species to have in a zoo either. And I stood there with, with a falcon on my hand and a coffee in the other hand at 12 years old. And my mum and one of my friends that was there said, we'll see you later. We're going to actually go and enjoy the zoo and you stand here and wait, wait for him to come back. And it was only when he came back and he said, oh, you did a good job actually do you want to come and volunteer in the weekend from then on really it's kind of taken over so yeah I gave up all my weekends all my holidays you know all my friends at school were all heading out to the cinema and parties and weekends and birthdays and I was working and you know it took me a couple of years before I started getting paid and then I was getting paid by the owner of Blair Drummond helping out in, with the you know with the penguins and with the farmyard animals and the lemurs the bears getting through all that sort of stuff with, with some amazing people and some amazing people that are still at Blair Drummond actually which is, is really nice to see them whenever I get to go home Being Scottish originally as well that helped but yeah and then from there you know I I went on and decided that I was going to be a vet that was going to be my goal in life didn't do as well in school as I thought I was going to do didn't get my physics and ended up deciding to go for zoology instead which is by no means a lesser career but you know when you want to be a vet that's where you want to be. So yeah, so I went all the way up to Aberdeen, studied veterinary medicine, and then from there ended up in the completely opposite end of the country, actually. And every summer I would drive from Aberdeen down to Wiltshire and work for Longleat and get into work with the, the team there. I can't quite remember how I ended up down at Longleat. I'm not sure whether I saw it on the TV and thought I'd like to work there or whether that was the natural progression for me to go from Blair Drummond to another kind of similar part. And, and yeah, and then from there path zoology went on to veterinary medicine in the end 
went out to the Middle East for a blip and worked for Alain Zoo out there and then kind of came back, ended up back at Longley actually, before then getting back out to Jersey. So my journey has been really varied actually. And, you know, I look back on it now and I think, how on earth did I make those decisions? <laughs> I certainly think, when did a 23-year-old me think, yeah, let's just pack up my bags and move to Abu Dhabi. That's that's a good thing to do. But I, I think I took some risks and luckily for me, they've paid off and I worked hard. It's got me to where I am and very proud to be where I am. But it's it's not without all the amazing people I met along the way. So an interesting journey. I could probably bore you for, for days with yeah, in, in a snapshot. That's that's kind of how I got to where I am. What an incredible journey. And I'm sure many years of that still to come. Now, thank you so much for sharing your journey up to this point. And, and from that journey, do you have any advice for our, for our listeners or to your younger self from the journey you've been on and, and what you've learned? Do you know, I've worked with enough zookeepers now, both you know one-on-one and as a manager now. And there's things I always say. And one is make use of the networking opportunities that you've got, you know, talk to people and I know it's very difficult because you know you want to work with animals generally because you prefer animals to people that's that's the general rule for most people and it's really difficult because you become very passionate about the animals you work with you become quite possessive over the animals you work with but the more you talk to people the more you get to know people you'll be yourself and your your own personality will shine through and also you know don't burn bridges that's that's probably my favorite one of all of it it doesn't matter you know how much you hate your colleague or you think your boss was wrong or your favorite animal has passed away and that's the end of your career as far as you see it don't ever burn bridges because the industry is so small and i think it's important to you know maintain those friendships keep networking be nice to people that's that's the core i'm sure james i've told you on many occasions you know i generally don't hire people with huge amounts of experience unless they're really nice i can train you to be a good zookeeper I can show you the ropes and I can connect you with people that will guide you along the way, but I can't train you to be a nice person. And and at the end of the day, you know, 90% of the work that we do in zoos is talking to other people and looking after the animals to boot. So you've got to have that nice nature about you and the desire to want to do some good and then be prepared to talk about it. And that, that for me, I think is probably one of the most important things. Absolutely. Some cracking words there, Graham. And I couldn't agree more. Your personality is as powerful as your CV. So some cracking words there. Now, moving on to that next question, and that leads perfectly onto anyone listening who is maybe changing role, looking to progress into another role, or simply coming into the industry, Graham. What would you advise them to make their CV shine a little brighter? Maybe put that little golden star on the top to allow them to get that interview, allow them to get that role to shine a little brighter than the others. What else can they have on there? What extra trade, what extra skill would make them more valuable to you? People have to do something that makes them stand out. It's a hard thing to do and it's not about having your CV printed on a different colored paper or anything else. There's a lot of people coming out with the same degrees, the same college courses, They've all done two weeks at Kennels and Cattery. They've all done a week's placement at a zoo. They've all worked for the vet practice. You know, they've all got the similar things. And I'm not taking away any of that because I did all of that. You know, what are the other things that you can do? You know, joining organizations like ABWAC is a really good one, but actually making use of it properly. You know, it's it's not about being a member sitting in the corner of the room at the, at the symposiums and, and never speaking. To, go and introduce yourself. I'm very, very happy if you buy me a glass of wine at an ABWAC conference and have a chat with me. You know, I, I can't promise I can give you an answer, but I'm very happy to talk to you about... You you know, the work I do, the work my organization does, you know, and I'm also very happy to point you in the direction of people that I think might be able to guide you further. And I think most zoo directors and CEOs and animal managers, curators, they're all the same. Most of them have all come from that same area or they've all come from other industries where they've grown through the ranks as well. So I think, I think firstly, you know, don't be afraid to talk to us because, you know, I go to ABWAC because I enjoy it, but I also go because I'm keeping an eye out on future staff I want at Durrell, you know, and, and I go there and I'm looking around and I'm looking at who I'm watching 
like all the time and I'm looking to see who's engaging who's doing the presentations who's got a good poster you know who's come up and made them you know made themselves known and it's about kind of just standing out from the crowd a little bit and you know it's, it's interesting and I'll, I'll tell you this because it will embarrass her but the lady I work for currently uh, Dr. Leslie Dickey I met her uh, outside an ABWAC conference when she was the director of IASA good maybe Oh, 10 or 15 years ago. She'll never admit that she remembers it. And I wind her up about it all the time. But at the end of the ABWAC conference, you know, I remember who I was with. I remember saying to them, I want to talk to her. Like, I found her presentation to be inspiring because it was the first time I'd really heard about IASA and the work that they do and the breeding programs. And I wanted to talk to her more about it. And I followed her out of the room and I followed her halfway around Edinburgh Zoo until finally I managed to get her with nobody else. And I just went up and introduced myself and froze. And they didn't know what I was going to actually ask her because I hadn't got to that part. But, you know, in a small funny world that we we live in 10 or 15 years later i'm sat in an interview with leslie dickey and and i said to her we we know each other roughly she said, yeah yeah we, we i know off you and you know of me and i said yeah we've met and i recalled that story and i remember the hr director here going oh my god you remember that and actually for me it still reminds me that the importance of just getting out there get out of your comfort zone go and say hi to somebody doesn't matter if you think you're going to be an idiot no one's ever going to think you're an idiot. Just go and say hi. Introduce yourself. Ask their advice. Tell them that you love their presentation. Ask them if you can just sit. Don't sit with your friends at conferences. Go and sit on a spare chair in another table because it is the difference between you getting a job and not getting a job. And, you know, without embarrassing you, James, that's exactly what happened to you. And I remember, you know, for, for those listening, I was working in the Middle East at the time. And James, you were working at a small bird of prey center. And I met you at a conference. It was the ICZ in Leipzig. And I remember chatting to you. And I remember teasing you about needing a haircut. You know, and I left that conference going, he's a good guy, actually. He's a good keeper. And I was going to watch you and and that sounds really creepy i'm sorry obviously you know i never then hired you in the middle east because it's much more difficult to get but i went to longley and i remember us having a discussion about the collection and uh you know where we wanted to go and and i remember speaking to katrina my deputy at the time and thinking i have the right guy in mind i think i know who should come work here and just subtly reaching out to you and saying maybe you should drop your cv in you know that would be good for you to do and going through the full interview process and, and then you know i look at you now james and actually see where you've grown and, and developed and think yeah i made the right judgment call you know and, and actually that whole situation happened I might met you, you know, later down the line, or this might be the first time we've met. But for me, you know, I went to that conference. I was not only participating in it and enjoying it for myself, but I was also keeping an eye out for, you know, potential talent, you know, that could support me and what I need to do in, in other zoos. But, you know, I, I think I don't want to give everyone a complex that you go to a conference and that you're being watched constantly by Graham, but it does happen. You know, you meet somebody and you think, I absolutely could have them in my organization. I'd love to get them in my organization. And like what we, you said earlier, it's about building a team. I'm constantly looking at my my guys here and thinking what are we missing what you know what skill set do we lack what personalities do we lack you know do we need to bring somebody in to add a bit of life into that team or it all comes back to that same thing of i look for people that are nice people and that for me is, is really important we can put you on 100 different training courses to do 100 different things but you know you've got to have that little spark that i see in some people and think yeah you'll go far so i suppose you know if you're at a conference with me you know i will be watching so, <laughs> so behave yourself i suppose some really great advice there graham and some crack stories i definitely owe a lot to you in my career so thank you very much for that now this leads us on to that next question and the next question being that age-old question 
What's more relevant to you? Is it three years experience or three years of education? What's going to get that person a job with you? Try and get the highest qualification you can possibly get. Because even though you might go and do zoology or animal care or animal welfare or zoo management or a DIMSA course or whatever your capabilities are, it is a key that opens up doors. I like to think I've done okay for myself on an academic side. You know, I write papers with scientists. I work, you know, I work in that in that field, but I don't classify myself as a hugely academic person. So so there is, you know, there is limit. But as a manager that hires people, I tend to get a feeling when you first meet people in the first five minutes, those first impressions can be quite important in, a, in an interview situation. I always think you can have the more academic accolades than anyone else. But if you can't make eye contact in an interview and you, you don't you don't come across well or you're not a nice person, <laughs> you won't get the job with me. I think there is a balance because there is an ever changing role for zookeepers nowadays. You know, it, it used to be a zookeeper was paid to come in, muck out, hose the floors down and go again. Whereas now we're asking zookeepers to design enclosures, come up with husbandry training plans, uh, record everything that they're doing on Zims, be able to discuss with the vet welfare outcomes and medical procedures and the behaviour they've noticed. We're also asking zookeepers to supervise students that are doing research projects. If you've been to university or you've been to college or you've, you've spent a couple of years in the industry already, you know, it's much easier to understand why a student wants to watch behaviour or what they're looking for or why they're taking samples. Could you write a scientific paper? Probably not, but you at least have an understanding of how they operate. So I think there is advantages and disadvantages advantages to both you know experience is an interesting one as well because it depends where it depends with who it depends what experience sometimes there is a value to, to bringing in somebody in that you personally have worked with or have experience off because you know they have a specific skill set but there is also a disadvantage to bringing in somebody that has 10 years experience in one zoo because i guarantee they come with some bad habits some cracking words now our next question then your role it has its level of stress as the whole industry does. It has its pressure. It has its its moments of mayhem. How have you found, how have you learned to control that, to combine that into a, a productive and, and forward-thinking attitude? Do you know, I'm, I'm one of these ones that I like it when it's busy uh, and I like the challenge. I, I like it when it's, you know, when it's firing on all cylinders and there's stuff left, right and centre. And for me, that keeps me productive. You know, I'm not afraid to say that I probably get a little bit lazy when it's all quiet and calm, actually. And I, that little bit of pressure for me does wonders. I'm definitely one of these ones that will leave the homework till the night before the assessment is due in. So for me, having you know pressure is actually a good thing it isn't for some you know i currently work in an environment where i have hugely supportive chief exec um a really great team of directors that you know we all bounce off each other we all have really good open communication so we can you know if there's a problem we just ask you know we ask for help and to be honest i I think I've been really lucky in that I've had that pretty much in all of my jobs up to now where, and it is what you make it, you know, you, you build your own team around you. But when I was at Longley, I had an amazing team of people around me in all levels, not just managers, same in the Middle East. And, and that really, if I've got that part ticked off, for me personally, it doesn't matter how much pressure you throw at me, I'll, I'll make it work. And I think for me as well, I, what I'm quite good at is prioritization. So I'm quite good at looking at 10 different tasks that everybody says are the most important ones on the planet. And I'm very good at looking at things which ones am I capable of doing immediately? Which ones do I need a bit of support on? Which ones have I got no clue? And which ones do I hate and I'll leave till last? I like to think I'm very good at prioritizing all of that. And that certainly helps in my role where, you know, I currently manage currently eight, eight or nine departments currently with a huge variety of, of skill sets, not just the animal teams, but veterinary, landscaping, maintenance, uh, logistics, site services, sustainability, registrars, you name it, as well as all the field programs as well.
well. And I think if you looked at that on paper, you would think, geez, that's more work than one person can handle. But it's about prioritizing that workload and thinking, right, what's urgent that needs done immediately? How do I get my team engaged so that they take some of that work from me and, and can help me facilitate some of that? And then which elements do I need to sort of push back a little bit on and say, that's not ready for me to get involved yet. You guys have got the handle on that. So yeah, it's 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 about that as well, about prioritizing your workload and, and just taking the stress out of it. In the nice possible way, it's a job that we all love but it's a job. So you've got to have a home life balance. And it's really important that you can go home at five, six, seven, eight o'clock, whatever time you finish, you can put your feet up, you can pet the dog, feed the cat and switch off. And that's really important. I'm a really bad one for working in the evening as well, but that's my choice. You should never feel like you have to continue working after your workday finishes, unless you're hand rearing and then you don't get a choice. You know, it's, it's a home life balance. That's really, really important. I couldn't agree more. Some really great advice. And I, I think you hit nail on the head, a real balance between home and work life creates a really good well-being for anyone so spot on now graham i'm going to take you into the big questions take you into a part of this podcast which allows us to delve into some of the larger questions floating around the industry and hopefully find a few answers along the way so number one we're going to delve into the secretary of state delve into this lovely new document which has come out from the government which allows us to hopefully see zoos evolving changing maybe in one way or another but hopefully improving and that's what we endeavour to do as an industry year after year. So the main part of this I want to look into is the conservation aspect and how it states that you can no longer simply give funds to an in-the-field programme. You have to prove your worth. You have to show the true conservation that your collection is doing. So the question I've got for you alongside this, Graham, is with unlimited funds, what would you do to achieve this element? But also, I guess the more prominent question, especially coming from the place you have, being Durrell, what are you already doing to achieve this? Yeah, so it's an interesting one and a really interesting one for us, actually, because um, the UK zoo license doesn't cover Jersey. So so we try and follow it as best as possible, but um, it, it doesn't it cover us here because we have our own government. It is an interesting change. I think it, it's absolutely been needed, but I also think it's very risky still because, yes, you know, zoos are one of the biggest funders of field conservation projects around the world. And giving money to a, a field conservation organisation is absolutely still required. And I, I think there's a difference between a zoo saying we do conservation because we raise funds for giraffes in Africa. It is very different to we fund the giraffe work in Africa, but we also send our staff out to actively engage in the projects. There's two different things there. You know, one is this kind of conservation greenwashing idea where organizations shout about the amazing conservation work they do, but in reality, they've never left their zoo. But that not taking away the volume of money. I think what's really interesting is looking at several fold to this, and I don't want to get too political with it, but the bigger question is how much percentage turnover do you give to conservation? That's quite important. Some of the big zoos, the studies that came out in the AZA not that long ago, but some of the biggest zoos in America were giving less than one or two percent of their turnover to a conservation project. And I always wonder a little bit when an organization, whether that's a zoo, an NGO, can spend 50 or 60 million pounds on an office block or an enclosure, but only go a million pounds a year to conservation. That is an odd one. And and I get both sides, you've got to generate revenue. But I think it's about looking at the percentage turnover. So I can proudly sit here and say that Durrell is about 50 to 60% of its gross income is given to conservation, which at the last EASA Director's Day in France last year was, I believe, the highest zoo-based organization out of any of them. Maybe close with WCS and the Bronx Zoo and uh, some of the larger organizations out there. But there is a difference between 
between, you know, Durrell runs its own field programs. First and foremost, we do not donate money to any other organizations. Now, we, we partner with them and we may fund elements of projects, but they are funded because Durrell is a partner and an active partner. And we run projects in lovely little locations, actually, around the world. All, all nice and sunny with lovely beaches. But uh, we run them in the Caribbean. We run them in Madagascar, which is our, by far our biggest. We run them uh, in the UK mainland. We have projects in India. We have projects globally all around the world. We are, first and foremost, a conservation organization that owns a zoo. And the zoo is the window into the conservation work that we do, rather than a zoo that tries to do conservation, a bit of a different outlook on things. We have about 100 odd people based in Jersey, and we, we have probably another 200 people based in the field. So the, our balance is, you know, is much more field weighted. But we run the zoo the same as any other zoo, and we fund the zoo the same as any other zoo. But we just prioritize our, our fundraising for the field. Saying that, you know, I'm fully aware that not all zoos have the resources or even the skill set to be able to do that. We have an entire director that looks after field programs. That's his entire job is to look after the field work we do. We have an entire science team that look after the research and the efficiencies and the backing up what we do. And we have an entire zoo team that manage the captive animal elements and a veterinary team that work globally across the world. So we are set up for it. So it's very difficult to, for organizations to just suddenly switch and try and do that. Does, I do think there needs to be a balance. You know, the, the larger organizations and the better funded organizations need to do better. That's us included. You know, we, we're, we're always looking for avenues to do more in the field. And, you know, why do we need to breed this in captivity anymore when we could breed it in situ in the field and use the zoo-based knowledge to train up locals in the field. And, and that's really where Durrell comes into its own. But also, you know, there is a requirement for funding. You know, NGOs working in the field never have enough. It's hard to find them, which is a difficult one. You know, finding the right organization, but then also measuring your efficiency. And I think that's where zoos fall down a little bit and where Durrell does a lot of training and, and work on that aspect. It's great if you can give a bit of money to an NGO working in the field, but where is the result? What is your zoo? What is your zoo getting out of that? So I, I use giraffes as an example. If you are giving £10,000 a year, which is a huge sum of money to the Giraffe Foundation, you should also be asking them for reports back on where your money has been spent. You should be asking to see their reports on how efficient they've been, what change that your money has made, because you can't possibly report back on your conservation efforts and the change that you have made as an organization if you don't have the data to back it up. You know, we look at numbers and we, th we throw out numbers here, how many species that Durrell has actively taken part in saving and how many species that Durrell staff over the years have prevented from being extinct. And the only reason we have that information that backs up the work that we do is because we measure the efficiency and we measure how effective we are as an organization against other organizations, against the field, against success targets, and using conservation principles to ensure that, that we manage that properly. So putting a member of staff for two weeks in a rainforest, counting frog numbers is great. It's great for the member of staff. It's great for the collection to have a real live conservation footage to share and stories to share. But what have you actually achieved? And it's about looking at that mission and saying, you know, what is the result of your organization's input? And, and the second fold to that is where has that money come from? Because donations from public on a, in a charity box and a keeper stall and a fundraiser is very different to organizational input. And, and I think a lot of organizations actually need to sit down and think about maybe, you know, their objectives objectives and their core goals here and think it's lovely if you can get 10 or 15,000 pounds from public donations. That's amazing. And the public love to support that. 
but also how much of your income are you putting in there as well? Are you taking a percentage from your ticket sales? Are you, it's these sort of efforts that stand you out as an organization and as keepers, you know, it's not just your organization, it's you doing keeper days. There's a difference between shaking a pot and asking for money, which zoos are well placed to do because the millions and millions of visitors that come through every year. But it's also about what does our organization wish to fund? Why, you know, how much money can we make? Being realistic as well about the species you're choosing to work for. Don't spread yourself too thin. You cannot save every African animal on the savannah. You can't save every species in the rainforest, but you can make a much bigger impact if you pick two or three species that your staff have the expertise with, that you work really, really well in. And, you know, I look at some of the projects I've been involved in over the years, not just within Durrell, but in Longleat and in other organizations. And, you know, the koalas for me was, was a big one that that was a real step change for an organization such as Longleat to actively say, right, this is a great project. This is the work we're doing on it. This is the money we're putting to forward for it. But then also, this is the training and development we're doing with our staff. This is the partnerships we're working with in the field. This is the support we're giving to this species long term. That project for me, and because it was partially myself that helped set it up but that project ticked so many boxes in terms of what zoos should be doing it's what IASA now are pushing as this one plan approach which is stop looking at it and thinking you know let's bring this animal in we'll raise a bit of money on a keeper day and we'll send it out to the field that's what zoos of the past did what zoos of the current and zoos of the future need to be doing is to looking at a handful of core animals or species that they're specialists in or species that they're well known for and how do they how do they really make a difference to those animals what are the partnerships you know how much staff development staff time can they put into that how much core funding do they want to support that how does their exhibit tell that message it's not for just putting up a board and saying hey we fund this it's about the people involved getting people connected that element of involving people in everything that that animal represents in your organization so i think that although the zoo license is changing or potentially changing in the uk it will help force a lot of zoos to do that but i also think that zoos need to sit down and think right where do we want to go how do we take that legislative requirement and grow it how do we make it bigger? You know, what projects do we need to do within our own zoo? Which projects can we do in the wider community? Which projects can we do internationally? I didn't expect any different from you, Graham. A real wealth of knowledge and some cracking answers. So thank you so much for that. Now, that's number one complete. Number two, we're going to move on to collection planning. This is something that everyone in the industry wants to be involved in, from keeper up to director. You want your favourite animal in there to simply being part of the future planning of your collection. Now, the question I've got for you is what makes your collection so unique to the industry? And it, looking back, would you change anything in your collection plan? So th this is probably a really controversial question, actually, because obviously I'm a, I'm a new director at Durrell, and Durrell over the years has a reputation. You know, we specialise in stuff that is about to go extinct. A horrible way of thinking about things, actually. But um, over the years, we, we just seem to have fallen into a category where we, we have specialists in being able to bring animals at their last legs into captivity, get them breeding again, and get them back out to the field, which is quite unique. But at the same aspects of things, we are still we are we do still run a zoo in Jersey that still has visitors are coming in and we still have to be aware that there is a large percentage of visitors that have no interest in conservation work that we're doing. We have visitors that come here because they want to have a pleasant day out with their families. So there has to be a mix. And also, unfortunately, with a lot of these rare and critically endangered species, they don't display very well or they need to be off show to breed well. You know, things like the giant jumping rats that we have, they're they're amazing and one of my favorites. You know, will you ever see them in an exhibit? Very rarely. Do they breed well on public show? No, not really. Are they an ideal animal in a collection planning process? No, they're not. So actually, we have to have a balance. And this is probably probably one of the biggest changes that I've brought to Durrell in recent years is you know looking at our collection plan both from a conservation aspect and what species 
do we work with and need to continue working with, you know, that we're pinnacle in saving through the zoo here? But so which species do we need to bring in to hit the other elements of the work that we do, which is about the community engagement and support? And, and we operate with the principles of nature connection here, which is about looking at how we connect people better with nature, because you know yourself, the days of standing up in front of a public in a keeper talk and saying, these animals are endangered, they're declining because people are shooting them and the habitat loss. And I mean, that's great. But most people switch off. You know, the, the narration now from our learning experts is that telling people the negative aspects of animal husbandry and animal conservation actually turns people off conservation quicker than trying to engage them with the good parts. So it's about the work that we do here in the zoo in Jersey and, and the work, the wider work we do in Durham. It's about looking at it as two what do we need to do in terms of our collection to keep certain projects afield? We took in a whole lot of uh, Mauritian reptiles uh, a couple of years ago that were caught up in the oil spill. That was a rescue effort. Those animals are now being used in the zoo here for research with genetics at Cardiff University. And, you know, we're, we're feeding back to the Mauritian government on their husbandry. We've managed to breed them to third generation now, you know, first time ever in captivity. One aspect is that, is that you know, zoos being there, they have the facilities, they have the expertise they have the finances to do that rescue effort but then there's also the long-term survival and looking realistically at some of our programs and thinking do we have enough individuals in captivity to actually make this a viable population and it's also looking at do we have enough numbers in captivity so that if we lose the wild population in one hit that we have enough to try and repopulate and repatriate things like pigeons uh, speaking to the bird team the other day we've got 47 percent of the world's genetics for pink pigeons in jersey zoo and, and off that, most of the alleles that are found in that pink pigeon population are no longer represented in the wild. They've been lost through loss of birds and a steady rate of extinction. You know, the collection of 40-odd pigeons that we have here basically have half the world's pink pigeon genetics in the collection. So zoos like Jersey are, are hugely important for species like that. But we brought in Golden Guernsey goats earlier uh, last year with the value that they are a British rare breed. They are, to a certain extent, native on Jersey. They have a lot of history in our community. But also, they're one of the few animals in the zoo that kids can engage with, meet them walking around the zoo. And, and it's an interesting one because it's split Daryl in half. And the reason I say that is that there's a lot of people even within my organization that maybe don't believe the goats, for example, are true to what Daryl is and true to the, the you know, they're not a an IUCN red-listed endangered species from the most remote part of Madagascar that you'll never ever see again. They are in a lot of collections around the world. However, the value that we get out of those animals in nature connection, in kids remembering that the zoo was a positive and pleasant experience from them. And actually, if you're an educator or you're a volunteer or you're a keeper and you walk up to someone and say, hey, let me talk to you about conservation. Most people say, you're all right, thanks. I'm going to go and grab an ice cream. Whereas if you said to them, do you want to come and touch the goat? Oh, you're touching the goat. I'm going to tell you about the why goats are so dangerous in our rural communities and why they strip out plant life and that reduces animals. You can have a really meaningful conversation by using an animal as that ambassador type species. You know, that's what we do when we do stick insect handling sessions. And that's what we do when we do meet the ferrets. And all of those interactions shouldn't be overlooked in zoos because they actually have a much more successful in connecting people with emotions about nature and their senses about nature and you know that their love passion for wildlife which 
if you get somebody completely tied up in absolutely loving animals, they're more likely to support your work going forward and they're more likely to care about it than if they just see it as an animal in a zoo that they come and visit. The collection planning process is an interesting one because it has to be a live document. It has to change all the time. It has to grow with the collection and it has to change with the staffing that you have as well, with the experience you have and the skills that you have. But it has to be flexible enough as well to change. So, you know, we never ever planned for three species of Mauritian reptile that had never been kept in captivity before. But we adapted our collection plan to meet the needs of the conservation situation at that time. And we've done that with black line tamarins. We've done that with eyes in the past. We've done that with uh, pink pigeons. We've done it with so many different species. It's a challenging one because too many cooks in the kitchen can make it very complex procedure and everybody has their favorites and everybody doesn't like certain things and whatnot. And it is the real reason you hire a curator or a, you know an animal manager is that their role is to sort of look at what the breeding programs say, what the learning requirements are, what the nature connection elements are, what the field work needs. Their job is to look at all of that and pull that together. But I certainly think a collection plan should be shared with an organization so that the keepers at every level, the vets at every level, that even the people that are in the shops, they understand why animals are here and what the purpose of those animals are. And that might be, you know, this animal's been here 20 years and we owe it that. And we should look after that until the end of its days because we bred that animal. We've used it for many years in education. We have the responsibility to give it its retirement. Or it may be that actually, you know, this animal is listed on a, on a regional collection plan as super important. We've got ties to it in the field. The keepers love working with it. We've got research on it where the learning team have a whole educational program based around it. And actually that for us matches really higher. And it's it's also good to, to make sure that it's objective as well. So I can sit there and say, oh, I'd love to have this animal in, but it goes through the scoring matrix. It goes through a almost a, a process where you can do it however you want with your curators, with a mixture of keepers, with team leaders, you know, with vets involved, whoever you feel fits in your organization and score everything and go through quite objectively. And we've, we've just done ours here at Durrell for the, the coming year. It's quite an interesting process to go through and, and say to people, but why do we really have that animal? You know, why why are we breeding this? What is the purpose of it? You've only got one pair. Is that worthwhile? You know, should you not give those animals to somebody else and focus your efforts on something else? And so there's lots of these kind of conversations. But if you're an organization that can have those internal conversations, then your collection planning process becomes a lot more transparent and, and easy to understand. And it's about nobody getting too upset about it and just having those honest conversations to say, why have we got this? Can we justify why we have this animal? Can we justify the enclosure we have for this animal? Do we meet its welfare requirements? Do our vet team know how to care for it? Do our keepers know how to feed it? All of these questions that you should ask in a process, and we're trying to catch up with a lot of that now with welfare audits and nutritional reviews and, and various bits and bobs, but actually a collection planning process captures a lot of that and just starts looking at your collection. The same as I said about conservation, as an organization, the organization should look at itself and think, what are we here to achieve? You know, What is our end goal? What do we want from our animal collection? And, and all of that then being communicated nicely throughout the whole organization so that everybody's on board with it. That's the best, best way to sort of manage things what a cracking answer now we're going to take you graham into the final part of this podcast that is the quick fire round it's a round which can as it indicates go super speedy or erupt into a whole wealth of communication and conversation so let's see how we get on first one is a nice and simple one 
What is your favourite animal? I, I always tend to answer this one. Actually, one of my favourites is the Madagascan hissing cockroach, which is a really unusual one for me because I'm allergic to them and they make me swell up and my eyes shut up. And I think one day they, they will probably be the death of me. But the reason I like them is that they are hugely underrated in zoos. They are found in all of our field programmes in Madagascar. They're everywhere. They don't live in big colonies of thousands like everybody keeps them in zoos. They live up in trees in twos and threes. Everyone says they're indestructible, but I've never known one to be totally indestructible. Second to that, I, I probably have to say the secretary bird because it's my stud book that I've run for about 10 years now. And I think every person that owns a secretary bird in Europe has probably had me on the phone to them, banging for information and desperate to get these animals in the breeding programme. So probably them, although sadly we don't have any in Jersey, but they're tall and long-legged and stunning and everybody should have them. Do we need to do more with them? Absolutely. Both very, very amazing species. Now, number two then, what is the best part of the industry? For me personally, the the opportunities to, to travel, to be part of that big zoo family where, you know, I talk to people in South Africa. Yeah, I've never been to South Africa. I talk to people in India and I was lucky enough to go there last year. I get to speak to people from all over the world that if I didn't work in a zoo, probably would never ever meet. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Now, the next question, Graham, what do you feel we need to improve within the industry? There is a lack of manager training because generally people that become animal managers and then curators and then directors generally have worked their way up through the system. They were keepers and then they learned from a manager and then they became a manager and then they learned from their director and then they became a director and they worked up through the rank. And I think actually, you know, you know, in a finance industry or in a, you know, healthcare industry, to get to that next level, you have to do a substantial bit more learning and development. And I think we're, we're really guilty as an industry for putting people in roles that they maybe don't have a huge amount of experience in. So if you've been in one collection or you've never worked anywhere else and then all of a sudden you've been made the manager of that collection, you will only manage as good as the person that managed you. So, uh, you know, I'm not saying I'm the best manager under the sun, but I've, I've been around lots of different managers and I've seen good ones and bad ones and learned things I agree with and learned things I disagree with. And, and it, I hope that it sculpted me and the manager that I am. But if you've never had that exposure, it's it's a lot more challenging. Yeah, for sure. Some really cool and such an interesting angle to take. So a very, very good answer. Now we move on then to the next one. And this could take you anywhere in the globe. What zoo globally would you like to visit, Graham, and why? It's a really challenging one, actually. So I, I suppose I, I've got a few favourites, one of which is Singapore, which obviously, James, you and I have both been to many times. Singapore for me is amazing because, you know, they're able to manage a lot of these animals that we manage in UK zoos, but in naturalistic temperatures with the right humidity and natural planting and vines to die for. And, and okay, they, you know, they've got multiple zoos now. It is an amazing operation out there from a zoo operations point of view as well. I mean, they've got thousands of staff in one location, quite an impressive organization and, and genuinely a lovely team of people that work there as well. In terms of zoos that I've maybe not visited, oh, that that's <laughs> it's probably a really tricky one. But I think, you know, a couple of the Kiwi zoos I, I'm quite keen to, to get out to. I've heard some really good things about places like Auckland, ridiculously high welfare and, and um, exhibit value guidelines. You know, I love to see how, how that does, how they work. And actually that relates quite nicely to the UK zoos because the climate's not totally dissimilar. I do a lot of teaching with IASA in Eastern Europe in zoos that are well below par. But actually I quite like to look at some of these zoos that are not at the standards that maybe our zoos are at in the UK and actually look at options of how some small amounts of training and some small adjustments, how actually some of those could be amazing. And I was lucky enough early in the year to visit Assam state zoo in india and it was pretty spectacular actually and i think you know a couple of keepers over there for a few weeks doing some training would make a massive difference to that zoo but the space 
and the trees and the natural valleys and stuff they had was pretty impressive. So yeah, I, I jump around. I'm very indecisive, I suppose. So I, I tend to um, I tend to see something. I think, oh, I should go there at some point. Ah, oh, some great zoos, some really good shouts there. Now the next one is quite a large question, and that is, what is your top tip for mental health and well-being? It's a home life balance. First and foremost, have your day off. You know, I, I find myself even talking to some of my managers here where I say to them, you don't need to come in on Saturday. The team have got it covered. Seriously, I'm not saying it because I don't want you here. I'm saying it because I want you to have your day off. If you if you get yourself into a healthy position where you're coming in because you want to come in, not because you feel you have to come in, you in, stick to the rules. You know, there's a reason that companies want you to work four days a week or five days a week. It's because they acknowledge at some point that you have to have a home life balance. It is important and it's hard if you, you know, it's hard if you you live on your own and you're new in a job and you know all you want to do is get to work but you need to sometimes have two days of downtime or a day of downtime just to reboot you can ask for advice you, you know you talk to other zookeepers and ask how they they deal with things and do you know what get off social media you know i'm on facebook and i'm on instagram and everything else but i absolutely hate with a passion these zoo forums they're not healthy places and especially with the nice new anonymous function they're even worse um speaking to people face to face picking up a phone you know drafting an email you know you get the true characteristic of somebody sitting behind kind of Facebook screen that's blank and has no pictures and no information, people tend to, to say things that they probably wouldn't say in person. And that can be really dangerous and hurtful to the industry and, and individuals that work there as well. You know, my advice, and it's the advice that was echoed actually at the ABWAC conference last year is, you know, talk to your colleagues in person, tell them your problems. Don't be afraid to speak to your managers about you know, your mental health and your situation you're in, if you're struggling with a home life balance, you know, they're not there to fix it, but they'll help. Don't go online to the forums. It's it's a it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous game to play. Some really great advice there. Now we're coming towards the end of this quick fire round, Graham. And we're going to lead you to one of the last questions. And that is, who is your idol within the industry? Oh, that's a really interesting one, actually. There's always a handful of people that you engage with as you're sort of growing and working through the ranks and you can say it because I work for her but Leslie Dickey and David Field for me you know they've always been there in my career so now I get to work with them and, and sort of see the other side of it and it's it's fascinating and I, I learn a lot from that I suppose it, for, for me it's been less of idols and who maybe I necessarily look up to but who I've appreciated working for I try not to embarrass these people but you know I've done I did 15 years or so working with Aaron at Longley and you know learned a huge amount from him and then also working with various CEOs over the years you know Mark Craig, who I worked with in, in Alain, was just an amazing guy. Yeah, I mean Al Alex Lloyd, who's now at WWT, and some of these some of these characters, they're responsible for chiseling away at me and getting me into the right place for me to take on a directorship role. I wouldn't have been here if I had the meetings with them where they, you know, where they said, "Oh, you didn't speak to that person properly, or you could have done that better, or I need you to do this, or where's that report?" And, you know, they they've kind of you know over the years guided me in the right direction to get to where I am. And I, you know, I suppose for me, I'm thankful for them in terms of like other idols and stuff i probably don't really have any others <laughs> oh i should say gerald durrell but you know i i actually you know i i love I, I love his books and his and his work and what he set up here but he was never one i read actually when i was younger which is surprising to a lot i suppose as well some of the people i meet in the field you and i james have worked for chris daniels and bev at um, minton farm you know some of the people that have worked in some of these wildlife rescues that are so poorly funded and yet you know through blood sweat and tears and their own their own um, savings, they do incredible work. And I, and I actually think that 
zoos have a bigger role to support in some of those guys going forward. I'm always a fan of this, the little guys. Um, so I think for me, you know, probably, there is one, actually, there is one that comes to mind, actually, and, and you've met him. Um, a guy called Subaraj, uh, Subaraj Raja Thurai, his name was, and he's uh, he sadly passed away, based in Singapore. I did an internship with him when I was 17 or 18, and I was just, uh, you know, seven foot, Tamil, big white beard on him, knew every bird sound in the Malaysian rainforest. You know, he was the guy that took David Attenborough around, you know. So as much as David Attenborough is amazing, Raj is the is the real guy that knew where all the animals were. So I think for me, probably he, he's probably one of my my biggest idols. And sadly, you know, he's not around anymore. But n- nice to see now that he's been recognized and you know, there's a, there's a rare frog named after him and he's still living on in there. So actually, yeah, from a wildlife conservation point of view, him, but from an industry point of view, you know, the, the amazing managers and directors and CEOs that I've been lucky enough to work with and, and get to work with now, you know, I, I get to work with some amazing characters like like James at Marwell and various other CEOs around the world. And, uh, and I learn from them every time I talk to them. So that's why I'd say to everyone else as well, you know, these people that are running your organizations, they do know their stuff and they are, they are nice, jolly nice people and take every opportunity to raid their brains for every little bit of information because you'll get out of them and, and it could be the one bit of information that changes your whole outlook on on life. Some really touching and really heartfelt words there, Graham. So thank you so much for sharing those amazing stories about those amazing people. Now, we're going to lead you to that final question. And that final question, I think it's going to be the hardest one for you out of the whole lot. And that is for the whole podcast. That is because I'm going to lead you to this question, which is, I now want you, Graham, to sum up the industry in only three words. That's really hard because I talk a lot. Um, Progressive, um, passionate, and so many words. Progressive, passionate, and this is a difficult one because if you're not seeing my facial expressions right now and trying to decide (laughs) what this last word is, um, I think challenging. You know, I think that's that's probably you know i see it i see the industry growing and i see it changing from you know even when i started you know 20 odd years ago i see the change it's made it's made and i i see the opportunities that are available for people now that weren't available to me when i was a young kid you know it's challenging because i think it's good for it to be challenging i think we should we should be challenging ourselves and it should challenge you in your day-to-day lives because that's how you grow and develop but it is also full of lots and lots of really passionate people that if they are guided and pointed in the right direction can do some amazing things in the wrong direction are are challenging to work with and work for but you know i i think yeah i think for me that's that's the three words very good and that does draw us to the end of this podcast from myself and the listeners i just want to express a, a massive thank you for coming on graham it's been a real privilege to hear you hear your story and hear a bit about Daryl and all the work you're doing at that end oh thank you for having me and it's, it's been a been a pleasure now hopefully we'll uh, get you on again soon but thank you once again for coming on and our listeners um, will continue listening on thanks James bye and that concludes this week's episode what an amazing guest and an amazing time we had now if you have enjoyed it please do subscribe on Instagram Facebook or our podcast channels to zookeeping 101 I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey learning about everything zookeeper. Otherwise, please subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you very, very soon. Bye.